great managers in many ways are like great sports coaches. And so the first thing they do is clarify, which is, where are we going? What is the vision? How can you understand how your work relates to the purpose and mission of what we're doing? Welcome to Future Work, the podcast where we bring you practical tips and insights on the ever-evolving landscape of work. Join us as we explore the trends, innovations, and challenges shaping the way we work today and tomorrow. How do we successfully manage teams in the age of remote work? That's what I discussed today with Jennifer Dalski, the founder and CEO of Rising Team. And Jennifer knows a thing or two about managing teams. After working for Yahoo, Jennifer became co-founder and CEO of the DealMap, which was acquired in 2011 by Google, where she spent almost two years as a senior executive. She joined Change.org as COO and president and played a leadership role at Facebook. In April 2020, she founded Rising Team, a platform that we have loved using to easily run awesome team development sessions that increase connection and engagement. Jennifer also writes about leadership for LinkedIn influencers and Fortune, and she's a Stanford Graduate School of Business Management lecturer. Her first book, Purposeful, about how we can all be a movement starter, became a Wall Street Journal bestseller. So yes, she knows a thing or two about managing remote teams. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. So Jennifer, you started your new company, Rising Team, that I just mentioned during the pandemic. What was the idea at that time and how has it changed since? Because a lot of things have changed just in the last two years. <laughs> no kidding. I, you know, it's interesting. I started Rising Team at the beginning of 2020. So I did not know, nor did, as none of us knew, that there was a global pandemic coming. And I started Rising Team, as many founders do, to build the tool I wish I had had. So, you know, I've been leading teams for 25 years, as you mentioned, and I always felt like for me, our organizations were most successful when the teams were successful, when people felt cared for and empowered and supported. And I didn't feel like I had the tools I needed as a manager. And so I sometimes describe it like, you know, even when I had executive coaches and fancy trainings and so forth, it was like being taught to fish and then being going back to the lake with a binder, you know, instead of a fishing pole. <laughs> and so I ended up hacking together a bunch of tools to use with my teams, but I never really felt like I had what I needed. And so the idea behind Rising Team was to give all managers and leaders scalable products that they could learn how to be a great leader and then have the tools to bring those concepts to life with their teams. That what changed is that, you know, the thing I thought was important to me in my whole career suddenly became urgent and critical because all of a sudden, not only was it hard to find the right tools to support your team, but everybody was remote and hybrid. And so it was actually a big unlock for us from a product standpoint. The original version of Rising Team was built for managers to use one-on-one -on -one with each of their team members. And when the pandemic hit, everybody said to us, oh my gosh, I just need something to use with my team as a whole. How do I make them feel like a team? And so we rebuilt Rising Team to be a team product. And that was the big unlock for the company. The fundamentals of how to run a team successfully are, are well documented. 
you know, with all these things that are changing in the world of work and the way that we work together and the places that we work from, what are some things that are still the same? Like, what are some of those foundational things that every team manager should know? Yeah, I call them the four C's. Not everyone may label them the same way, but I like to think in, you know, acronyms. So for me, it's the four C's. The first one is clarify. And actually, for me, part of the reason we call it rising team and our brand colors and our theme and so forth is very sports oriented because great managers in many ways are like great sports coaches. And so the first thing they do is clarify, which is where are we going? What is the vision? How can you understand how your work relates to the purpose and mission of what we're doing? And what does winning look like? Mm. So everybody has to be clear on what that is and feel personally have line of sight to how they impact it. The second C is coach, which is great managers understand each person on their team as an individual. They know that your preferences, your working styles, your talents, the way you want to be appreciated, et cetera, is unique. And this is actually one of the most important things I teach in my class at the business school at Stanford is you need to understand what motivates each person on your team and don't assume it's what motivates you because it rarely is. Mm. The third C is connect, which is how do you make the team feel like a team? Um, I don't know. Did you watch Maverick, the Top Gun movie? Yep. Yeah. See, I love both of those movies, but one of my favorite scenes in the second one is, you know, he takes them to the beach to play football and the admiral comes and says, what are you doing here? You only have two weeks, this critically important mission. And he turns to him and he says, you told me to make them a team, sir. And that's the thing. If you don't make your team feel like a team, they really won't be effective. And then the fourth C, mm. so we have clarify, coach, connect. The fourth C is consistently. Mm. <laughs> you have to do them regularly. You can't assume that if you say your mission once, everyone will get it forever. You have to repeat it over and over again. You can't, you know, this is why rising team sessions are done. Yeah. We recommend twice a quarter. You have to do, you have to invest in those things regularly in order for them to work. And mm -hmm. those four C's have been the same long before the pandemic ever started or people worked remotely. Hmm. Long before Rising Team even. Long before. I mean, that's why I joke. It's like we built Rising Team because the four C's were necessary. It's just that what happened in the pandemic is that the connect C became much harder to do. Mm -hmm. And so more important because you have to be a lot more intentional about it when people aren't physically together. Yeah, and the really interesting thing is too that like in a lot of the conversations that we're having with company leaders, that we're having with managers, is that everyone thinks that they have hybrid problems or they have remote problems, but all the actual problems come from things that are very, again, foundational, are have been true for decades and decades and are just about the people and how they work together. And sometimes they need, I think, a platform like Rising Team to, again, put them together and say, let's look at the foundations first and not worry so much about, you know, this being a distributed team problem. This is just about how you guys work together and is there psychological safety? Do you trust each other, et cetera? And one thing that I thought was really interesting, I wrote an article last year about the importance of managers specifically in solving some of those challenges at the team level. It sounds like that's also where you're really focusing, even though... We hear a lot from HR leaders. We hear a lot from company leaders. Why are the managers so important? And maybe if they are so important, what can they do to be more effective? Yeah, so managers are the key to everything here. And the reason is that the things that employees really want, that employers are overlooking, 
cannot be done top down. Mm. So if you look at the data, one of my favorite studies came out from McKinsey. They did a global study and they asked employers what they think employees care about. And then they asked employees what they care about. And there's some overlap, right? Compensation is a good example of things everybody knows people care about. But there's also a whole set of things that employees really care about that most companies are under-delivering, which are things like feeling valued by my organization, feeling a sense of belonging, having trust and care with the people I work with, having a clear sense of my path for growth inside this company. Mm. And those things... They just can't be done top down. You know, you can't have a CEO come out and say, you know, today everyone's going to feel valued and like they belong. It has to be done team by team, manager by manager at the ground level. And the challenge here, you know, we did a, a survey. I know you do a lot of these really great research studies. We put out one in the spring called Evolution of Teams. Hmm. And the data was really clear that the managers, they are the most important, but they're also struggling the most. Hmm. They are the most burned out. They feel the least supported by their own managers. And they're just caught in the middle. Hmm. And, you know, they feel so pressured to hit all their goals and so forth. And then on top of that, they don't have the tools to do it. So even if you say, you have to make sure your whole team feels like they belong and feel like they're supported by you, and you don't give them any tools, mm. and they're pressed for time, how are they supposed to do it? It's close to impossible. So that's what we're trying to do is give them the tools to make it easy, you know, plug and play, you pick a kit, you press go, you know, the hardest thing, to be honest, is still just setting aside the time to do it. Yeah, and that maybe leads to another really good question that if the managers are so important, you know, are organizations themselves underestimating the importance of people managers? Are there some things that we can do at an organizational level to make the managers more successful? Well, the first thing is believe in their existence, right? So we're having, like, if you look at large tech companies right now, and thanks, shouldn't speak to this as my former company, but things like the year of efficiency, for example, you know, we're just getting rid of managers across the board. And what that's doing is causing people to have much larger teams. So if you used to manage a team of five or seven, and now you manage a team of 20, it's really difficult to expect you to understand each one as an individual, coach them, care about them, support them, and still get anything else done. So, you know, the first thing I would say is don't make your managers manage too many people if you want people to feel invested and supported in. The second thing is we have to give them tools, training, and support. So as an example, early in my career, I worked at a nonprofit and I founded a a local site of a nonprofit that was meant to help motivated, under-resourced kids become the first in their families to go to university. So this program's so unique. You take all these kids, they're really motivated, but they don't know the path because no one in their family has ever done it. And they haven't had the support. And to be honest, no one has ever set the expectation for them that they can do it. And this program, they have to do a big application. They go to this program in the summer and the teaching is all done by high school and college students. So mm. you have middle schoolers, you know, 12-year-olds being taught by 18-year-olds. But what that does is model for them what's possible. And the key formula had four things. One was set the right high expectations, right? So in this case, we believe that you can go to college. That was the expectation. 
The second was support them to be able to do that. It's not enough to just set an expectation. You have to offer the support, the tools, the help, the assistance, and that's what they did. And then once they have the tools, you require their action and delivery against the milestones you know, to do. And so these kids, for instance, you had to be able to take algebra by the time you were in ninth grade, as an example. And if they did their hard work in the summer and got into algebra, they were on that path. And yeah. what I saw from this program is if you set the right expectations, offer the support and tools and require the practice, then people can absolutely achieve the very high expectations. And so if what we want to do is mm. empower managers, we need to do just that. We need to set the expectations, provide tools and support, and require practice against the milestones. That's mm. what it takes. And most companies don't do that. Any guess as to why they don't? I think that, I mean, and honestly, I can look back at myself in previous places in my own mm -hmm. career where, you know, I was leading a big team and managers were coming to me asking for help and more training and support. And it was a combination of, didn't have time, didn't have budget, you know, didn't realize how important it was. And so in my past, I've probably underinvested in those things too. And it's not mm. a it's not a criticism of people's understanding. It's just the realities of business. I think what we underestimate is the power of how much more teams can accomplish if we do invest mm. a little bit in them up front in this way. Okay. I think that sounds like a really good rallying cry. And I think that is something that companies can really take to heart is that, you know, sometimes you do need to kind of like take a step back and look at what you're doing and what's possible. And there is more potential there, right? Teams can rise. So I think that's a really good one. <laughs> it can be, you know, affordable. That's the other thing is like, it, you know, I remember before we had tools like this, you you have to think, oh my gosh, am I going to bring in a facilitator? That's going to cost 25K. And, the, you know, how am I going to do this? And so we're talking about, you know, the idea here is you get kind of the interactivity and excitement engagement of having an outside facilitator, but for the cost of a regular SaaS product. So in a much more affordable way in much less time. And again, whether it's Rising Team or any other tool you use to do this, it can be. So if I go back to my blockers were not enough time, not enough budget, wasn't sure how important it was. If we can persuade people it's important then I think there are now ways to do it with much less time and much less budget. Oh, definitely. And it can just be so transformational. I've used that word before about rising team and not to make this sound like an ad, but, you know, again, we've used it. We felt the impact, just like you said, like you've been doing this kind of training for super senior leadership teams. And now we get access to that for like a really low fee per month. So it is pretty incredible. And one of the first kits that we did was psychological safety, which is something that I had heard about. But, you know, again, I would never have even just done the effort of going on Coursera or on YouTube and finding some kind of lesson or training about that and then facilitate a session with the team. But, you know, you prepare that in the key content, the key things we need to know, and then exercises to actually be familiar with the concept and build psychological safety. So can you maybe just on that one topic, because I think it was one of the ones that really stood out to me and the team. Can you share a bit like what is psychological safety? Why is it so important? And how can we help teams uh, build it? 
Sure. So psychological safety is creating an environment where employees feel comfortable expressing their thoughts, their ideas, and their concerns without any fear of negative consequences. Yeah. And those fears are typically pretty uh, justified, right? That's right. They can be. And you can look at environments when you don't have psychological safety, there are major consequences like, you know, the software error and the Boeing airline, as an example, where people presumably knew that there was a problem and nobody felt safe enough to speak up. And then they had a major, major Mm. safety issue. So the consequences of not having psychological safety are high, especially at some companies. The benefits of having it, you know, teams that have psychological safety are more innovative, more creative, they are more engaged, they have better attention, they have fewer errors, all of that stuff. And Google did a big project called Project Aristotle, where they studied all the different factors of the highest performing teams in their company and the teams that were lower performing. And they found that psychological safety was the number one most important factor driving high performing teams. So it is critically important. It actually has four stages. So the rising team kit that you did is about stage one of psychological safety, which Tim Clark, who wrote that book, calls inclusion safety, which is how do we make people feel safe for what they bring to the table? They should feel included for whatever their preferences, their talents, et cetera. And the kit that we developed for inclusion safety is has an activity called user manuals, which is used in a lot of workplaces now. The idea is, you know, if I were an appliance, how would I operate? And the reason that kit works so well is because it builds over time. So one thing we know about psychological safety is you can't just say, today, everybody's going to be psychologically safe and, you know, boom, it turns on. You have to build it by building trust over time. And so the session starts with, you know, a lightweight warm up, some icebreakers, and then it goes into working style preference questions, which are easier to answer, like, what times of day do you like to work? And when is it okay to interrupt you? And then it builds from there into deeper, more vulnerable questions, like, what do you struggle with at work? Or what do you want your team to really Mm -hmm. understand about you? And the reason that works, because you build up over time. And also there's a step where the team lead has to start by modeling and sharing a story about something they struggle with. So this is another reason why a tool like Rising Team is very different than traditional training, because you can always put leaders in a room and tell them they have to be vulnerable with their teams. What you can't guarantee is that they will actually do it when they leave that room. But if you're in the Mm -hmm. middle of a session and there's a page everybody sees that says, team lead, go first, share a story about a struggle, you know, there's no way out of that. you got to share it. And presumably if you do, then your team sees you being vulnerable and they are more vulnerable over time. So what we've done, you know, now we've built a session for each of the four stages. So there's one for inclusion, safety, learner, safety, collaborator, safety. And we're just now building the one called challenger safety. It's called speak up culture. And in addition to running the full sessions, we also have little tips that people can do in between the sessions or outside the sessions. Maybe I can share a couple of those now for people who aren't going to use the full kit so that they have a few quick. Yeah, let's do it. Sure. So the first one, as I mentioned already, is be vulnerable. Like the more you as a leader can share stories of things that have been hard for you, the more your team is likely to do that. The second one would be something we call include all voices. So one of the things that we see on teams is that 
as everybody knows, some people are very fast to speak up and other people are much slower and need time to think and so forth. And so you can try things like mm-hmm. asking a question and having people write down their thoughts first and then asking everybody to share their written thoughts so that you make sure that there's room for everybody's voice, mm-hmm. including introverts who need some time to think. And one other tip is just about asking good questions. So, you know, things like, okay, is everybody on board or does everybody agree is a horrible question for psychological safety. What you want to do is ask pointed questions like, is anything missing? Or Hmm. what do you see that could go wrong here? Like specifically ask the question of the thing you want people to point out. And that's much more likely to elicit the types of answers you want. Incredible. So they're very simple. They require no budget, very little time. All it takes is just people to understand that this is important and then apply some of the lessons, right? right? So thanks for sharing that. I'm also very curious. You know, you come from these very big organizations, Yahoo, Facebook, Change.org. Now you're running your own team. What lessons are you applying? Like, are you, you know, you're in a different kind of seat now, right? Are you able to apply all your own wisdom? Uh, Do you still then run into challenges? Yeah, (laughs) I'm very curious. Yeah. I say most of these things are a little bit like climbing a mountain. You know, some days are really sunny and you can (laughs) see the top and other days are really cloudy and a big storm is coming. And that's true Mm. of startups. It's also true of big companies. But I'd say we definitely try. So the first thing is we have a really clear set of values as a, a company. They're posted on our website. And, you know, when I first got to change.org, it had been around several years and they had never articulated company values, even though they had them. Like presumably you have values, whether you articulate them or not, you are living by some kind of values. And so it's one of the first things I did when I got there is help them articulate those. And, you know, one of the benefits of starting a company is you can do that from the beginning. So day one, you Mm -hmm. know, we start with mission, vision, values, and we, everybody who gets hired is interviewed by our values. The performance review process, we call it contribution reviews. Everybody sets goals, not only for results, but also for values. And they get measured every month. They measure themselves on how they're doing on values. So we do that. The second thing we do is we use our own product fairly consistently. So we set, we put it in our company goals to run X numbers of of rising team sessions per team per quarter. And that really does help us be deeply connected and grow together. And then the other thing we do, and I know you are excellent at this, so maybe you should share some ideas here too, but we... um, we have a number of traditions that we use that help us feel like a community, even though we are all remote. So things like, you know, all team calls are themed and everybody always picks a background and dresses up so that we're all in the same theme and we talk about it. And we have a tool we call Magic Hat, which asks a different question of our team every day in a Slack message. It's actually, we really should offer it as part of Rising Team also. So I'm happy to give it to you if you if you want it. But it basically asks a fun question every day that people are answering. And there, there's all sorts of traditions like like that that we do that help a lot. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the main changes that we've made in the last couple of months is to never start any meeting or anything that we do without breaking the ice. So again, I think going back to your point that to make your team very engaged, especially in like a hybrid or remote setting and to really bond people together. It's not big things. It's not expensive things that don't even need to take a lot of time. 
but we just made it part of our culture that, you know, sometimes we're all sitting together or we're all on a call together. We're almost getting into the work and it's like someone will always raise their hand and say, wait, 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 it's icebreaker time first. So just something to do when there are so many tools out there and there's so many ways to do that. It can be answering questions. It can be um, a small game that we play online, like a Pictionary, or we use this tool called uh, Gartic Phone, which is like online version of playing the telephone game where you pass on things by doodling and guessing. But all of these things just help kind of like, again, connect us as people, then we can get into the work. So doing that like basically twice a week at this point, because we have twice a week team meetings, just is incredibly helpful. And I think, again, it's just all about keeping that sense of humanity. And then we can go into the business and talk about why we didn't hit our KPIs. <laughs> That's right. Or, you know, sometimes we do that. I mean, we always do a beginning of meeting check-in too. And sometimes they are fun and <laughs> upbeat and sometimes they're not. You know, someone, yeah. someone has something big going on in their life and they want to share it or just need to talk about it. You know, we have another session that is really popular right now around resilience and the beginning of it has everybody mm-hmm. check in on their own resilience levels and share that with each other because... I mean, the truth is some days, you know, people might have a lot going on on any given day that is related to work or totally unrelated to work. And if we ignore that stuff, we will never be as effective as a team. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we need to give people the chance to speak. But again, I think one thing I've also learned from you is that you need to do that in a very inclusive way and you need to do it in a way where everyone does feel safe, because again, nothing is worse than you know, calling out publicly or going around the table, so to speak, and saying, everyone share what's bothering you today, right? Nothing could be worse for certain people. You want to create that forum, you want to create an opportunity for people to share, but you definitely don't want to single people out and say, so what is your problem today, right? So that's another thing I I took away, yeah. So, so much wisdom from you, so many great insights here. To close out the podcast, the interview, if there was one key lesson, I know you have so many lessons specifically, but if there was one key lesson or key thought or key wish that you could convey to the world, what would it be? So one thing about me, and if anybody reads my book, you'll learn about it, is that I love acronyms. I, in fact, my closing, my last day of class that of the class that I teach is all about the acronyms by which I run my life. Um, I grew up in a family that loved using acronyms. We had like a list on the refrigerator and so forth. But the one that means the most to me is what I call FOM, F-O-W-M. It is the opposite of FOMO, essentially. It stands for <laughs> focus on what matters. And it comes from a few experiences that I've had in my life that have been quite difficult, one of which is I have two daughters and and one of them got in a very bad accident on the playground when she was seven and I was at a work offsite and it was horrible. I won't go into the whole story right now, but it gave me intensely deep perspective Hmm. and it just made me realize that a lot of the things I thought were important at work weren't actually that important. And it's not to say that we shouldn't care about our work. We absolutely should. But at the end of the day, you know, I say people don't lie on their deathbeds saying... You know, I wish I hit that one more OKR. Like they say, did I spend enough time with the people that matter to me? Did I do anything that matters in my life? And so that's why I say FOM instead of FOMO. Beautiful. Jennifer, thanks so much for being here today. It was great to speak to you. 
I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jennifer. I took away five key insights that I want to share with you. First, it's still about good management. Many things may be different now, but the basics of good management still stand. And for Jennifer, those are the four C's. Clarifying, coaching, connecting, and doing that consistently. The second insight is that companies need to support their managers better. And Jennifer gave three tips for how we can support managers better, especially now that they need it more as their teams have grown larger because of budget cuts and layoffs. One, set the right high expectation. Two, offer the support to get there. And three, require their action and delivery. The third point is that psychological safety is key in the future of work. Jennifer explained that psychological safety is when people feel safe to express their thoughts, ideas, and concerns without the fear of negative consequences. One of the stages, inclusion safety, can be as simple as writing and sharing personal user manuals, as Brian Elliott from Slack also said in the last episode. And the last business lesson that we can all apply is that traditions are more crucial than ever in distributed teams. And as Jennifer is now running a remote team herself, she has seen the importance of rituals. That can be as simple as wearing a themed outfit at a virtual meeting or asking a random question daily. And then finally, a beautiful personal insight, practice foam, focus on what matters. Jennifer had a difficult experience when her daughter got into a playground accident. And by the way, she's recovered fully. And it made Jennifer realize that people don't lie on their deathbed saying, I wish I had hit one more OKR. Instead, they'll think about the people that mattered to them and the things they did that mattered. So forget about FOMO and practice foam. I think those were five great insights and I highly encourage you to follow Jennifer Dalski for more. Also, stay tuned for more future work. In the next episode, we have Edie Goldberg, a leadership coaching veteran and SHRM Foundation board member. We talk about talent marketplaces, fractional talent, and how we can get ahead in the age of AI. To get updates on all of our new episodes, go to flexos.org slash subscribe.